But if we could, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling, if we could turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'd like us just to look at the first six verses of this chapter. But if we just take as our text the first two. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The relationship between the church and the state has always been an interesting one. Because there has always been this tension as to how much say and how much influence either party should have in one another's business. Should the church tell the state how to govern, how to govern a nation? Or should the state tell the church how to worship God and live lives that are honouring to God? Now, there's always been this tension between the church and the state. Uh, but throughout the Old Testament, as you know, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel was ruled and it was, it was governed by the laws of God. Israel was what you could call a theocracy in which the church was the state. Israel was a theocracy in comparison to what we call today, we have a, a democracy. Because in a theocracy, God's law is sovereign and he rules and he reigns in all things. But in a democracy, uh, the government's law is sovereign and it rules in the interests of, of the people in fairness and equality, which everyone has a say and everyone is heard and everyone is equal and there's no discrimination. And sometimes that works in the favour of the church, but unfortunately in the day and generation that we live in, more often than not, it doesn't. And since the birth of Jesus and down throughout the centuries, there has been this tension between the church and the state. Because the church, it's ruled and it's governed by the kingdom of God and the laws of God. In which the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the king and head of the church. But the state, and our state in particular, it's governed by a democracy. It's under the rule and oversight of our sovereign, Queen Elizabeth. And tensions arise when either party begins to interfere. And that was the case for the free church and, over 170 years ago. But in May 1843, over 450 ministers, they left the established Church of Scotland because of the encroachment of the state upon the spiritual independence of the church. The state were intruding upon the church by a system that was called patronage. In which the landowners, those who owned the land round about, they paid the minister's wage, they paid for the manse, they paid for the upkeep of the church. And because of the state, they had the authority to insist that this minister went into this parish, irrespective of what the congregation said, and irrespective of the fact that he was converted or not. And there were many ministers at that time in the 19th century who stood in pulpits who didn't preach the gospel. And that's much like today. And this is why as a denomination we place such an emphasis upon the call. And the call of a minister. 
Because in the disruption in 1843, when the Free Church left the Church of Scotland, it was all because those who left the church, they believed that Christ is the king and head of the church, not the monarch and not the state. And that's why we're called the Free Church of Scotland. We're free from state control. Because we believe that as Christ's church, our doctrine, our government, our discipline is to be interpreted by the word of God and not the laws of the land. And God's word is to be interpreted and taught and implemented by those who hold office within the church courts rather than those within the civil courts. But even though the church and the state are not to be, they're, they're to be governed independently of one another, uh, they should seek help of one another for the Christian good of our nation. But the church also has a responsibility to the state. And this is what we're coming to. The church has a responsibility to the state because in this passage we're reminded that our responsibility to the state is to pray for those who hold positions of authority. We have a duty to pray for those who govern, govern our nation at national level and at local level. And with, well, the local elections this week and then the general election now <coughs> being called for the 8th of June, you know, I, I believe that it's fitting for us to remind ourselves of the church's responsibility in not only voting, but also in praying for those who are elected to serve our nation, both locally and nationally. And I'd like us just to consider the first few verses of this passage uh, under three headings. Mediation, mission, and the mediator. Mediation, mission, and the mediator. So if we look first of all at mediation, look at verses 1 and 2. Mediation. Paul says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, the letters of the Apostle Paul to both Timothy and then to Titus, these letters, these three letters, they've often been termed or described as the pastoral epistles. And they're pastoral because Paul wrote them to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. And they were serving, both young men who were serving in the ministry and they were serving the Lord in different places and in different contexts. Because Timothy was a minister, you could say, in an urban charge. He was in the city of Ephesus. And then Titus, he was called to a more rural charge. He was in a rural context on the Greek island of Crete. But these pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, they were known as epistles because they were letters of instruction and guidance. And what we see in these pastoral epistles is that the experienced Paul, Apostle Paul, he passes on his pastoral wisdom and his understanding to these two young men. And you know, that comes across so clearly as Paul's pastoral heart, as, it, as he recognises that as this Christian mentor, he must instruct and encourage and push gently these servants of the Lord in their endeavours of church leadership. And even though both Timothy and Titus, they had two different ministries, one was in a city, one was on an island, and yet they had the same purpose. The same purpose that we have today. The purpose of bringing Jesus Christ into every situation and into every conversation 
in order to further the kingdom of God in this world. And so Paul, he writes this first pastoral epistle to Timothy. This pastoral letter of instruction and guidance. And he encourages Timothy to stand firm and to continue in the faith and to continue to preach sound doctrine. Because, and he says that because at that time there were many false teachers who were teaching false doctrine. And they were leading the people astray. But despite all the opposition and discouragement, Paul is encouraging Timothy to keep fighting the good fight of faith. And with that, Paul gives Timothy instructions and advice to teach the Christians in Ephesus so that they will implement this teaching in their lives. And Paul highlights, he highlights various issues, such as we read that, the role of women in the church. He highlights the qualification for for elders and the qualification for deacons. But Paul also emphasizes Timothy's personal responsibility. And he says to Timothy, you need to guard your own heart and your own life. He says in chapter 4, near the end of chapter 4, verse 12, this is what he says to Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul's pastoral heart is that both Timothy and the congregation in Ephesus will progress in their faith and they will continue to serve the Lord where they are. But you know what's interesting is that Paul says that the first port of call, the first port of call as the church of Jesus Christ in the world, he says it's not to ensure that there are deacons or elders in place. It's not even to ensure that you're a good preacher, he says. Paul says our first port of call is to pray. The first port of call is to pray. He says it in verse 1, First of all then, I, am, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Paul exhorts and he encourages and even pleads with Timothy and his congregation that they will pray for everyone in general, but particularly those in authority. And what Paul is saying is, is Timothy, whatever else you do in your ministry, Whatever else you're going to do during a church service, prayer must be given the utmost priority. You must emphasize the importance of prayer in the life of an individual Christian and in the life of the church. Because as the church of Jesus Christ in the world, you have a responsibility to the state to mediate on their behalf for them and for all people everywhere. You have to pray for them. And you know, Paul's teaching, it's so relevant to us. And it's of the utmost importance. Because whatever we do in the name of Christ as individuals or as a congregation, whether it's worship or preaching or Sunday school or the parent and toddler or Christianity Explored or outreach, whatever it is we do in the name of Christ, prayer must be the priority. Prayer as individuals and as a congregation must be our first 
of Kong. You know, we had John Burney preaching this morning from the Slavic Gospel Association. And as many of you know, the motto of the Slavic Gospel Association is much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. And it was Spurgeon, you know, Spurgeon, he stressed to his congregation the importance of prayer. He regarded the prayer meeting, he called it the engine room of the church because without it, nothing would happen. The Lord would not bless the work of the gospel without the prayer of the Lord's people. And Spurgeon stressed to his congregation, he said that we shall never see much change for the better in our churches till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. And you know, if Paul had to stress the importance of prayer in the first century, and Spurgeon had to stress it in the 19th century, he had to rebuke Christians in his parish for not attending the prayer meeting, then you could say, well, nothing has changed. Because it's the same in the 21st century, and the emphasis is still the same. Prayer needs to be our priority. And the prayer meeting needs to occupy a higher place in the esteem of Christians. And if you're not a Christian, you are welcome to come. It's open to everyone. The prayer meeting is for everyone. It's a place to come and pray. And you know, is it not the case that we would be willing to put anything and everything aside and put it before going to the prayer meeting? We'd put all the other barriers in the way and say, well, I'm busy doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing this. We'd have all the other activities and go to all these other activities within the congregation or out with the congregation. We'll prioritise them in our diary before the prayer meeting. But Paul is exhorting us and he's encouraging us and he's actually pleading with us. And he's saying that prayer, both privately and corporately, is to be our priority. First of all, then, I urge... That supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. And you know, with this, we ought to see that Paul is specific when it comes to prayer. He's specific. He doesn't generalise it because he uses four different words to describe prayer. Supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings. And the, word, the words which Paul actually uses here... He's portraying to us the idea of coming into the presence of a king with a petition. That's what he's, he's literally, he's giving to us this idea of coming through the doors into the king's palace, into the throne room of the king and handing the king a petition. And, well, that's essentially what prayer is. The catechism says that prayer is an offering up of our desires to God that are agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. But you know, what we see here is that Paul uses these four different words. And the first word, Paul is drawing attention to the content of the petition. The first word is supplications. And it's the content. Because the petition, it's a supplication. It's a request to God. And Paul is saying that our requests are to be specific. They're not to be general requests about people and about ourselves. We should ask the Lord for specific things. Things that worry us. Things that concern us. Things that, that we desire. And we should pray 
specifically for them, specifically for, for others, and name them before the Lord. Name them, our family, name our family, our friends, our church, our work colleagues, those who are ill, those who are bereaved, those who are troubled, those who are facing different situations, and even those in positions of authority. We are to be specific, we are to name them before the Lord. And we're to ask the Lord for many things, for forgiveness, for help, for guidance, for direction, for blessing. Our, our supplications are to be specific. And you know, the wonder of what prayer is, is that we can ask the Lord anything. And we can speak to the Lord at any time, anywhere, and he will hear us. We can speak to him about the biggest concerns in our life. Or even the smallest issues that we may think are trivial and insignificant. And yet we're to bring everything to the Lord in prayer. We're to be specific. If he knows everything that's going on in our life, why aren't we specific? Our supplications and our requests are to be specific. But Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. And so... If you can put it this way, supplication is the petition in your hand going to the king. The supplication is the petition, the request itself, but prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. That's the manner in which you approach the king. That's what he's saying. Because the word prayer, it highlights that we are to approach our heavenly father in wonder and reverence because he is holy. We're, yes, he's our, he's our father in heaven, but we're to come before him in reverence and respect and give him the reverence and respect he deserves because he is the king of glory. So we're to come with prayers and intercessions, he says. That doesn't necessarily mean interceding on behalf of other people. It emphasizes this access. The doors have swung open. We have access into the throne room. And we're able to enter into the presence of King in order to submit our petition into his hands. And when we come into the presence of the King, when we come into the throne room with our petition, we're to do it not only with reverence, but also with thankfulness. Thankfulness that we have an access at all. We're to be thankful that we have an access to God. In because by our very nature, which is sinful and we're at enmity with God. We don't deserve to, to make a petition to God, let alone enter into his presence. And yet the wonder of what prayer is, is that we can come before God in reverence and yet pour out our heart to him. And that's what the psalmist in Psalm 62 was encouraging us to do. He says, he's, the psalmist in Psalm 62 was speaking about his own experience and he said that God is my rock and he is my salvation. And he was saying, this is my experience. And then he says in verse 8, Therefore, you people, place your confidence in him continually. Pour out your heart before him. Because God is your refuge, he says. That's the promise we have. He says to go to the throne. Go to the throne of grace. And you know, I love what the psalmist in Psalm 116 says. He confessed that he loved the Lord because the Lord allowed him access into his presence. And to bring the petition into his hand. He says I love the Lord. Because my voice and prayers he did hear. I while I live will call on him. Who bowed to me 
his ear. The king was willing to listen to him. My friend, whoever we are and whatever situation we're in tonight, the wonder of prayer is that we're able to speak to the Lord about anything, absolutely anything, and he will bow down his ear and listen to our cries. And so our priority as a church towards ourselves and towards others and towards the state, it's mediation, prayer. Mediation, we're to pray. But secondly, we see mission. Mediation and mission. You see, I'll just read it from the beginning again. He says, first of all, then I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The mission which Paul refers to is not the church's mission, but God's mission through the church. And we're to pray for God's mission in the world to be realised and established through the church of Jesus Christ. We are to pray that God's desire will be fulfilled. Because as we read here, God's desire is that everyone, everywhere, will be saved and come (coughs) to a knowledge of the truth. And Paul has told us that our responsibility is to pray for everyone, everywhere. The church of Jesus Christ is to pray for all people, especially the state, such as kings and those in high positions of authority. He says the church is to pray for the state. But you know, this, exhort, this exhortation that Paul wrote to young Timothy, it was a hard one to swallow. Hard to accept. Because at that time, the early church, those who were in authority, in the early church, those who were in authority, they were trying to destroy the church. When Paul wrote this letter, persecution was growing. And the, the threat to the church was growing day by day. This threat to the church and to the Christians. Because as you know much of the ancient world. It was under the rule of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Emperor, emperor at that time was, was Nero. And if you know anything about Nero. It's that he had this satanic hatred for Christians. To the point that I'm sure you've heard of the great fire of Rome. In 64 AD. Nero started it himself. Then he blamed the Christians for the fire in order to to take the focus off himself, but also to provide him an excuse for persecuting all these Christians. And because Nero blamed the Christians for what had happened, persecution erupted through the Roman Empire. And Christians, they were not only denied certain privileges in society, but they were publicly butchered and burned or fed to the lions. But what often happened if Nero ever found out that you're a Christian is that he would have you captured, he would have you impaled on a pole outside his palace and he would set you on fire. You were a lamppost in his garden. Because to be a Christian in the first century meant that you were signing your death warrant. And to much to the same extent in the 21st century in some places. To be a Christian means that you're signing your death warrant. 
And yet it's into this awful situation that Paul says, pray. Pray for kings and those in high positions. Pray for the emperor. Pray for the Roman Empire. Pray for the Roman soldiers who are executing the persecution. And you know, that must have been hard for Timothy to take. Especially if his congregation was suffering at the hands of the Romans. But Paul's teaching, it's the same teaching as Jesus. We all know that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And, and, you know, knowing the situation Timothy was facing, it would have been hard for the church to pray for their enemies. But, you know, we have to remember that Paul himself, he was writing this letter from prison. And he had been imprisoned for not only being a Christian, but for also preaching the gospel. And so Paul knew what it was to experience persecution. But he also knew the importance of praying for our enemies, even those who are in authority over us. And the reason Paul exhorts us to pray for the monarch, the king, and those in positions of authority is because God's mission and God's desire is that they too will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And with this, my friend, we're being encouraged and exhorted to petition our God and to bring before him our queen and her family. We're to pray for the queen's husband, her children, her grandchildren, and even her great-grandchildren. We are the, the king and head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls us to pray for the queen and head of our state and all those who serve her. Because we're to pray for our MPs, we're to pray for our MSPs, we're to pray for our local councillors. And we're to pray for them specifically, individually, by name. And we're to pray for our Prime Minister, Theresa May, or whoever the next Prime Minister will be. We're to pray for the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. We're to pray for the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, and her Cabinet. We're to pray for those who rule in positions of authority. We're to pray that God's desire would be fulfilled in their lives, that they would be saved. And that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. Because as Proverbs 14 reminds us. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach or a disgrace to any people. And we need righteousness in the decisions that are made in Westminster and Holyrood and in Stornoway. We need righteousness in the hearts and lives of those who serve under the queen and head of our state. We need righteousness in our nation because it's only righteousness that will ever raise our nation out of the ashes and the darkness that it finds itself in. My friend, we need the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ to enable all our politicians and our counsellors to stand up for the truth and be a voice for the truth. We need to pray for our politicians, especially those who are professing Christians, that they would not compromise under the pressure of their party or the media. And I'm sure that you saw it uh, in this past week 
the leader of the liberal Democrats, compromising his faith in the teaching of the Bible. I'm sure you saw Tim Farron professes to be an evangelical Christian. And for years, if I can use the phrase, he said that gay sex was a sin. But due to party pressure, media pressure, he denied his beliefs, he undermined scripture. And it makes you sick. It makes you plead for the man. But what was worse is that he said proudly and publicly, gay sex is not a sin. And he's now a supporter of the the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender group, LGBT. But you know, on one level, it's so sad to see a Christian fall so publicly because of pressure. But you know, on another level, it's awful to think that our nation, it speaks like that so publicly and so freely without a thought of it, to talk about things like gay sex and all these things. And all the media wants to know is what position you hold on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And it's as if nothing else matters to them. But you know, it's only more evidence that Christians are being targeted because of what they believe. And it's the beginning of persecution. We've seen that time and time again in the news with the Asher's Bakery uh, situation. And all these different situations. As time goes by, things are escalating all the time. Which is why Paul exhorts not only, only the Ephesians but also us... To pray for those in positions of authority. And especially Christians who hold these positions. And you know there are a few Christians working in and around Parliament. The Parliament has a group. In Westminster there's a group called Christians in Parliament. And they meet together in prayer and Bible study. They have a website. It's called Christians in Parliament. They give prayer points for Christians who are in Parliament to pray for them. And you know, what I find amazing is that they even run a Christianity Explored course in the Parliament building. Because despite being in the minority all their, and all their opposition, they too desire that all people will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But when Paul says that we're to live a peaceable And quiet life that is godly and dignified in every way. He doesn't mean that we're to compromise our Christianity. And stay quiet and seek peace at all costs. No, Paul wants us to prayerfully stand up for the truth. But to do so in a dignified and a God-honoring way. And this means that we we should write to our politicians. We should write to our counselors. Not only to encourage them. And to remind them that we're praying for them. But we should also write to them about issues that affect us personally or affect the Christian community. We're not to write in the public forum just to get our, our opinion across. Because that does nothing but cause division and animosity against the church. But as Christians we should seek peace And prayerfully make a stand for issues that concern the Christian good of society. And in doing so, our desire should be God's desire. Our desire should be God's desire that all people everywhere will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Because God's desire is that everyone will come to know the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. God's desire is that everyone everywhere will not suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
and exchange the truth for a lie or ignore the truth or turn away from the truth. God is not willing, as the Bible says, that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's what Jesus said. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you know, for you, my unconverted friend, do you realize this? Do you realize this for yourself, that God's mission, God's desire for you is that you will be saved and that you will come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. God's desire is that you will come to know Jesus Christ as the truth. God's desire is that you will love the truth and believe the truth and obey the truth and rejoice in the truth and be sanctified through the truth. My friend, God's desire and the desire of every Christian in here tonight is that you will come to know Jesus Christ as your saviour. That's our desire. That's the longing that we have. That you too will come to know Jesus as your saviour. And you know, in, this last, in the last section we're going to look at, Paul explains how this is all possible. Because he says that Jesus is the mediator. And so we've considered that our priority as a church toward the state is mediation. We're to pray for all people everywhere, especially those in authority. Because God's mission and God's desire is that all people everywhere will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But this is only possible through the mediator, Jesus Christ. So mediation, mission, and lastly, the mediator. The mediator. Look at verse 5. Paul says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And in these words, Paul reveals the reason as to Why the church of Jesus Christ is to pray for everyone, everywhere, and that they will come to a knowledge of the truth. And Paul simply says that the reason is, is because there is one God. There are no other gods. And we were singing about that in Psalm 96. All the other gods are but but idols dumb, which blinded nations fear. But our God is the Lord by whom the heavens created were. There is one God. And that one God, as the Catechism tells us, he is infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. There is one God and that God is so unlike us and we are so unlike him. He is the creator, we are the creation. He is sovereign, we are the subject. He is pure, we are sinful. He is eternal, we are a creature's of time. This God is so unlike us and we are so unlike him. There is one God. And you know the Jews they believed that there was also only one God. That was and still is the testimony of the Jews. They they say their confession of faith every morning, the Shema, Hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. <clears throat> but the problem the Jews had and the problem they still have is that they believe that salvation Belongs to them. And that salvation is for no one else. And that's what we see when we read the Old Testament. 
The Jews became proud people because they believed salvation was theirs and it was for no other. But as a Jew himself, Paul has clearly told us that God's desire is not just that the Jews will be saved, but that all people will be saved and all people will come to a knowledge of the truth. But there's more, he says, because in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, there were many mediators. Many mediators who stood in that place between sinful man and holy God. There was Moses, there was Joshua, there were the judges, the kings, the prophets. They all mediated between God and the people and and holy God. But the problem was each and every one of them had a flaw. They couldn't fully relate to God. God was still this distant deity. He was still afar off, still enthroned in heaven high. But in these words, Paul presents to us the wonder of our gospel. That God provided a perfect mediator to fill this, this great chasm that separated holy God and sinful man. He says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And with this, Paul is saying that the mediator between God and mankind, he is able to re- relate to both parties. He's able to relate to both God and to mankind. Both God and mankind who are at enmity with one another because of sin. God is of purer eye than to behold iniquity and to look upon sin. God hates sin. And yet God and mankind are able to be reconciled together by the mediator between God and mankind. The man Christ Jesus. And Paul says that this is only because Jesus Christ is both God and man. He is the God-man. He has two distinct natures, divinity and humanity, and they're in one person forever. The one person, Jesus Christ. And by his very person, divinity, humanity, Jesus can relate to the glories of the Godhead, and he can also relate to the humanity of mankind. He's the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And you know, the writer to the Hebrews, he affirms that the man Christ Jesus, he says he's better than all the other mediators that were in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. He's better than Moses and Joshua and all the kings and all the judges and all the prophets because he says this Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. And that new covenant, he says, has been signed and sealed in his blood. As Hebrews chapter 9 puts it, the writer to the Hebrews says, this is the reason that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Because by his death, we are redeemed and we receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. And this is what Paul is saying to us. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. My friend, the testimony given, the testimony of Scripture, is that the mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, he gave himself, he says, as a ransom for all, to redeem us from the power of sin and death. 
He gave himself in order that God and sinners could be reconciled. He gave himself by being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He gave himself because, as he says himself, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He gave himself so that we will all be saved and that we will come to a knowledge of the truth. My friend, this Jesus, this God-man, this mediator, he gave himself so that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have eternal life. And you know, that's God's desire for you. That you will have eternal life. That's God's longing for you. That you'll be saved. God's desire, as John 3.16 says, is that you will not perish, but have eternal life. God's desire is that you will be saved and come to know Jesus Christ. That's God's desire for you. That's God's longing for you. That's what God wants for you. That's his desire. But you know the question, just in closing, what is your desire? If this is God's desire, that you'll be saved, that you'll come to a knowledge of the truth, that you'll come to know Jesus Christ, that you'll be reconciled with him, that you'll be in fellowship with him, communion with him. If that's God's desire for you, what is your desire? What is your desire? Do you desire to be saved? Do you desire to be reconciled with God? Do you desire to know Jesus as your own saviour? What is your desire? What's your longing? What is it that you really want? Surely it's to be saved. Surely it's to be a Christian. Surely it's to to commit your life to, to loving, following and serving Jesus Christ. What is your desire? And surely you can see by now that there is nothing in this life that is worth having than salvation. Nothing else worth clinging to. No one else worth knowing other than Jesus himself. Surely you you know that by now. What is your desire? If God's desire is to save you, (coughs) what is your desire? Is your desire to be saved? Well, my friend, Paul is exhorting us tonight not only to pray for those in authority over us, but also that all will be saved. The Christian's responsibility here tonight is to pray for those in here who are not yet saved, and those at home who are not yet saved, that they will come to a knowledge of the truth. Because the only way we can pray and the only way we can be saved is by coming to this same person, the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Therefore, says the writer to the Hebrews, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. 
O Lord, our gracious God, we give thanks to Thee for Thy word this evening. We thank Thee for the reminder that we have a mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, the one who became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, and yet he became that middle man between us and God, and we thank Thee and we praise Thee for him. We pray that we would not neglect him, but that we would see him as the one who calls us to pray, who calls us to commit ourselves to him, to follow him and to love him and to serve him. O Lord, help us to pray for one another and help us to pray for those in authority over us, that they would lead us and guide us in in the future that lies before us, if it's in accordance with thy will. Protect us, Lord, we plead. Keep us and answer our prayers in accordance with thine own will. For we ask everything in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We shall conclude by singing in Psalm 107. Psalm 107, page 382. Psalm 107. Singing from the beginning down to the verse marked 8. Praise God, for he is good, for still his mercies lasting be. Let God's redeemed say so, whom he from the enemy's hand did free. And gather them out of the lands, from north, south, east and west. They strayed in desert's pathless way, no city found to rest. Down to the verse marked 8 of Psalm 107, to God's praise.
Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.